Hi, you're listening to the Duty of Care podcast, a podcast produced by the Faculty of Architecture and the Built Environment of the Delft University of Technology. This podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values platform, the TU Delft platform discussing values for engineering and design. I'm Roberto Rocco, Associate Professor of Spatial Planning and Strategy at the Delft University of Technology. In 2019, the European Union launched its European Green Deal, aiming to make Europe carbon neutral by 2050. We all know the transition to a carbon neutral economy is urgent, but will it be fair? Past transitions have always produced winners and losers, with the losing groups often facing unemployment and poverty, with dire consequences for social cohesion and social justice. Think of the deindustrialization in the north of England in the 80s, for example, and the current deindustrialization of Appalachia in the United States, which, among many other factors, has fueled the rise of populism in that country, with dire consequences for the future of democracy. In the case of climate change and the urgent transition to sustainability, not having a transition will make us all losers. But this does not mean we should not try to avoid or minimize the negative impacts of the transition on vulnerable groups. It's all about the fair distribution of the benefits, but also the burdens of our human association. Therefore, an essential dimension of the European Green Deal is the concept of just transition, that is, a transition to a carbon-neutral economy that is fair and inclusive to all, leaving no one behind. Sustainable, fair and inclusive urbanization plays a key role in this endeavor. With those ideas in mind, we organized a series of online events and courses that address planning and designing cities and communities for the just transition. By bringing together expertise from spatial planning, urban sustainability and resilience, resilience engineering, ethics of resilience and multi-actor systems. We want to discuss the values in social technical transitions and urbanization, namely issues connected to distributive, procedural and restorative spatial justice, as well as citizen participation, democracy and sustainability, understood in its three essential dimensions, social, economic and environmental sustainability. In doing so, we wish to address the interactions between design and values with an emphasis on operationalizing spatial justice through inclusive vision-making and by using societal conflicts stemming from the transition as springboards to dialogue. So, we came up with the idea of this podcast. We wish to discuss and exchange ideas with academics, practitioners and students of the built environment to plan and design for the just transition with a robust understanding of the entanglement between spatial justice and sustainability. Last week, Professor Faranak Miraftab talked to us about the need to decolonize our minds and seek for the just city that is life-giving rather than profit-making. Today, we have Professor Mona Fawaz, Professor in Urban Studies and Planning at the American University of Beirut. She recently co-founded the Beirut Urban Lab at the American University, a regional research center 
invested in working towards more inclusive, just and viable cities. Mona is also the director of the Social Justice and the City Research Program based at the Isam Fars University of Public Policy at AUB. She was a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute of Advanced Studies at Harvard University. She has served on numerous national, regional and international juries, including the Aga Khan Awards in 2019. Mona's research spans across urban history and historiography, social and spatial justice, informality and the law, land, housing, property and space, as well as planning practice, theory and pedagogy. With no further ado, let's listen to Professor Mono Fawaz. Thank you everyone really first for uh, this invitation and the generous introduction. And also thank you for this very inspiring work. I'm uh, completely wowed by the idea that so many people are dreaming of a different kind of city and uh, really humbled to be uh, able to speak to you guys uh, tonight. So I hope I'll uh, be able to uh, contribute. Uh, I'll start by saying that one of the requests that Roberto made to me was to try and talk a little bit more about what planners can do and what planners can do in uh, places like Beirut, where I live, where uh, the uh, possibility of imagining a democratic inclusive state from which you can ask Uh, more justice or more green is very remote. And so how do we reimagine our places as planners, as professionals of the built environment in uh, thinking about that? So I tried to gear my presentation towards that, including nonetheless a good conversation, hopefully by informality. And uh, I'll, I guess I'll just start with that by sharing my presentation and uh, ask you guys to please let me know when I only have three or four minutes left. So I make sure I wrap up. So, um, so the informal. So let's start with Beirut first, where over the past year, uh, the Port Blas has brought substantial attention to the city and particularly to uh, its housing sector. As uh, many, many non-governmental and international non-governmental organizations began to work on the repair of uh, what was estimated at over 100,000 houses affected by the port explosion nearby. Uh, these organizations found themselves basically responding to layers and layers of neglect and damage that predated the blast by at least five decades. It was not only just dilapidated building or services that didn't function well, the poor physical condition or the redistributive apartments that presented a challenge. There was also a lot of questions about like property rights, who owns what in these neighborhoods, but also rental contracts that didn't seem to make sense. Who was allowing who to stay in a place? How much did people pay? How long did the pay change? 
Um, and then issues of personal entitlement, like are, do you have legal papers? Do you have the right to be here? Questions that we basically often hear in the formal and informal uh, sectors, right? And when you look at neighborhoods such as Carantina, which you're seeing on your picture here, um, it would seem that it's normal that we ask such a question. This is, after all, largely considered a dilapidated and formal settlement. But the same questions were being asked of Marm Hayel, which is Beirut's more consolidated, hip, upcoming neighborhood where heritage buildings seem to be raising the same questions, as did more modern buildings also along the neighborhood. It seemed that it was impossible to take a clear box on the categories that relief workers and planning agencies wanted to assess damage or identify claimants. Reality, in other words, was far more complex than a sheer survey of building damage or a list of claimants. And in the months that followed the blast, as the COVID crisis raged and everything in the country was in free fall, the volatility of the condition seemed to raise many more questions for uh, people trying to fix homes. To give you just a picture, our national currency has lost more than 90% of its value over only a few months. So that means that if you're renting a home, your landlord is renegotiating on a daily basis how much rent you're paying. And if you don't really have a contract, uh, there's you don't have any grounds to actually negotiate it. The cost of materials and repair was becoming more and more uh, expensive. And for those few people who managed to get some repair compensation, uh, the question of whether you pay for food or medicine or you repair your home um, became really important. Another question was really, uh, how do we position ourselves as planners? It was evident that some of the basic assumptions that we hold in our profession do not stand to Beirut's reality. So let's begin with that idea that there is a public agency. Here, the municipality, the director general of urbanism, the housing agencies had just fully delegated the reconstruction to NGOs and INGOs. And the residents seemed really not to want the state to come in. But how do we plan if we don't have a custodian of the common good? How do we design the recovery if no one is coordinating the word of all these actors? Even worse, what we call public was completely absented from recovery. So we had the Lebanese army that was making sure that uh, the right NGOs were entering the neighborhoods, but that was really the extent of the public. And conversely, spaces like these, uh, and this is uh, the Beirut Urban Lab working with the community on how should we imagine recovery, but places like this where a public space, a sidewalk, uh, that are considered shared public spaces had not only no custodian, but no one trying to repair them. So the public was really missing. And that's a point I really think is important for us to, to think about as planners when we think about what is our role in all of this. So as I found myself as a planner, a university professor, again, one more time in Beirut, speaking to relief agencies, speaking to international organizations uh, about why the state is absent, why is everything so fluid and unregulated, I found myself again and again resorting to the terminology of informality. Of course, the term has been widely used in the planning literature since the 1970s. So it refers to a form of housing, a modality of transaction, more generally an order of governance that occurs outside the direct presence of state agencies or state regulations. Um, 
And yet, and yet uh, as such, Beirut's landscape, I could explain, was highly informal. And it was not just informal settlements or confined to particular neighborhoods. It was basically in every neighborhood, almost everywhere. But while arguing that transactions are informal can provide some clarity for actors looking to classify and order a reality, um, help them understand that a lot works through temporary tactical arrangements, uh, as Abdul Malik Simon has taught us, for example. Um, it doesn't respond to the critical question of, is this informality desirable? In other words, if we as planners believe that our profession is about helping in the making of the just city like this workshop tells us to do, should we be embracing this informality as desirable? Does the absence of a state make for a more just city? I don't claim today that I'd be able to answer this very challenging question. However, I argue that at least for planners invested in the just city, we should pay more vigorous attention about how power dynamics play at multiple scales of the arrangements that organize people's everyday lives. In other words, we should extend our attention beyond the dual state-citizen relation and try to understand power as more diffuse in society. This is not a ticket at all to elude the larger structural injustice, to the contrary but to recognize that in particularly in contexts where the illusion of a strong custodian of the common goods embodied in the state is very far-fetched, where citizenship is really not on the table. And in those neighborhoods and elsewhere in Lebanon, just to give you one example, one in four people is a refugee. So we're talking about people who don't have legal papers to actually be there. Planners and planning need to shift this understanding of the common good from something that has a predefined custodian, that has a predefined definition, to a work in the making, a project, something that we need to imagine and work together through a process. So that's sort of my big message for today. But before I go there, let me turn back to informality. I had promised to speak about it. And so I'd like to start there uh, from Lima, as you can see this. Cities like this, where the images like this have circulated a lot in the planning literature since the 1960s. The contrast between imagined planning's ordered futures, right? Uh, the, the modern structures and those uh, unruly realities, right? Those realities that do not correspond to uh, how uh, planners and city governors imagine the city to work. Those realities often described as unplanned, unregulated, uh, where zoning doesn't apply, property rights are not necessarily uh, observed, building law is rarely uh, uh, protected. Such realities correspond to also to markets where transactions are unrecorded, are realities that we often associated with cities of the global south. So there's a beautiful literature that as of the 1960s, 70s, within planning, begins from Latin America, where uh, we begin to learn about words like favela, barrio, villa miseria, that really occupy people's imagination and become part of the lexicon of planning. Um, it translates a reality that eventually is also documented in Latin America, in East Asia, in the Middle East, and in Africa, but also more recently uh, uh, in the colonias of the United States, for example, where we see that along the borders of Texas, Arizona, and California, yes, similar informal neighborhoods have actually uh, developed. 
So in order to explain the discrepancy between how planners imagine the world and then how really planning works, the mainstream of planning has coined this terminology of informality. And like Lisa Pitti said, it's a term that's vague, that cannot be really um, defined, pinned down practically, but it's, it's a term that uh, has a use. And that use in uh, Watson's word is very important. It's one that points to those um, dominant, persistent uh, realities that clash with what planners put as normality, what is proper, what is clean, what is orderly. And so against the normality, uh, informality becomes this emblem of disorderness, of the unregulated, of the uncontrolled, the messy, the inefficient. And of course, this has a lot of repercussions. But before we talk about this, those, let's just think about uh, for a second, how do planners explain that? How do planners come to define to themselves the difference between, on the one hand, the clean, ordered city that they promise to design, and on the other, the reality of most of the world. So there's two tropes in planning that I think are very important to consider in this early literature. One is survival and the other is transience. Um, both of these realities have in common that they're trying to explain really why is it that right now the reality doesn't correspond to how as a planner I have organized the city or designed it. The survival trope is the earliest. It's very common. You see it in a lot of the classics. Uh, I've tried to put a few here for students who are interested. But basically, it, it holds that uh, people are poor. They can't afford to live in cities. So you're going to have to, in exclusive capitalist cities, you're going to have to accept the fact that to survive, they have to break the law. And there's, of course, many versions of this uh, literature, with one that celebrates really uh, the entrepreneurship, for example, with squatters and oligarchs and David Collier's famous work, but also with Janice Perlman, the of being a bourgeoisie, the perseverance of pioneers, the values of patriots she wrote in 1976. Taken uh, to date, I mean, a lot of us, I think a lot of people here are architects. Uh, this remains a strong conversation where uh, we see Brian Bohr, we see Teddy Cruz and others really engaging with informality as a site of inventiveness, ecological, recovering waste, uh, aestheticized poverty, yes of course, but it's important to consider that this is really a continuity of that same idea that people are surviving and we need to recognize that as part of our cities. On the other hand, there's this other promise, the promise of transience, which basically says that uh, this is temporary. It lasts for a certain period and it will change. And of course, the champion here was John Turner, who uh, convinced basically international organizations, including Habitat International, that this was a better form of building because it allowed people to have a housing project in which they conceived of housing, as he famously put it, as a verb, right? So people are building their own homes. They are uh, working towards a project. And we should allow this transitory phase before their houses consolidate in ways that would actually be more adequate to their needs than those defined by the state. This is, again, a trope that we continue to see. And it's interesting, Caldera recently documented it still in Sao Paulo, where she points that people inhabit spaces that are clearly precarious, but where they feel that they will improve, that they have the promise that one day they will be wealthier and that they will be part of and that they will look their neighborhoods 
will look as uh, part of a better city. Now, both survival and transience have in common this assumption that it's possible, perhaps even inevitable, that planning will extend its scope over urban territories, that it's unstoppable, it's a development process. And as such, the tropes allow planners to address informality as an aberration and to depict laissez-faire as almost a strategy. It also makes it possible uh, for planners to limit the scope, the imagination of how do we react towards neighborhoods like this or towards uh, the increasing informalized urban quarters of many, many cities in ways that say we're going to fix them, we're going to regularize them, we're going to upgrade them, we're going to improve them, always trying to formalize that informal to bring it back to that standard that is imagined. However, decades later, it's evident that the assumption that informality is transient doesn't stand the test of time. Rather than expanding its scope over cities, we know that planning in many cities, uh, planning understood as the public exercise of ordering space and providing services is actually reducing its scope. We see piling evidence from both the global north and the global south, where we see city authorities without that outdated bypassed master plans that they themselves ignore, designing small enclaves for the rich where city governments can work. Famously, if you look around us here in the region in the Middle East, from Cairo's new capital uh, to Tehran's imagined new capital, there is that aspiration that we're building uh, something else which is smaller, which departs from the city and loses the hope of fixing it. So a few decades ago, it was maybe possible to imagine that things were unusual that they will continue to, uh, to pin it on civil wars, on colonization. But I think that today we're increasingly seeing that this is a reality that we have to uh, reckon with. And to think about how to address this reality, I think the most important contribution that planning theories have done is to reinfuse a notion of power and politics in our reading of informality because that allows us then to consider the circumstances, the processes in which these neighborhoods uh, developed. And so in thinking about how to infuse uh, power and this really beautiful work, I mean, I put a few of the uh, of the literature, a few of the books that have addressed these issues and you can see they're not new since since the 60s. This conversation has been going, but it's been now really expanding. Um, what is interesting about it is that it basically allows us to think back of notions of politics uh, defined as an exercise of collectivity and to try and read information formality in relation to uh, these uh, realities. Mm. Um, so how have planners infused um, power uh, in, in, in the conversation of informality? I have to say, I was reading uh, Professor uh, Rocco's book a couple of days ago, and I noticed that I have exactly the same understanding of how power is infused. So uh, uh, that's, uh, uh, what would you say? Like that's a recognition that, wow, I mean, it's, it's there. I shouldn't be thinking about it. But in any case, I think there's two ways in which power really emerges in the discussion of informality. Uh, on the one hand, scholars have really argued that informal practices embody resistance. It's resistance to oppressive exclusive structures. And early versions of the argument celebrate the entrepreneurial spirit of the poor. We just mentioned it. But 
And more recently, we have notions like Holston's insurgent citizenship, Miraftag's invented citizenship or invented participation, Asif Bayat speaking of politics of encroachment. All of these basically, uh, what they're trying to do is to infuse an understanding of politics, of agency, but also of agency with the necessity to, to be recognized in one's acts. Uh, in the actions of informal settlers. And here I uh, disagree a little bit with Professor Rocco, but I think that uh, a lot of this really comes from Lefebvre's notion of the right to the city. In its original formulation, it comes again and again in the work of, uh, as an influential uh, reflection that infuses an act of politics in the way in which individuals uh, challenge the oppressive rules of both the state and capitalism. And I think capitalism here is key and how they then enact politics, not by asking someone. And that's where really uh, I think the right is misunderstood often in the literature, but to actualize their presence in the city through direct occupation. So it differs distinctively from the uses of the right to the city, where we expect the state to bestow some kind of entitlement based on one's citizenship. Rather, there is a progressive potential of taking back the the power by yourself enacting <clears throat> that right to the city, occupying the land, embodying actually in your actions, <clears throat> sorry, that, um, uh, that possibility, making it become uh, uh, an actual urban possible. And so we see this a lot in Holston's notion of insurgent citizenship in which residents in the auto-constructed peripheries of Brazilian cities confront regimes of inequality, not by waiting for the state to give them something, but by actually themselves building their neighborhoods. Something very similar is read in Benjamin's work of occupancy urbanism in India, but also in South Africa with uh, Faranak Miraftab and the work of communities that resist eviction and get their own uh, uh, service hookups. Um, it's noteworthy that some of these uh, actors, some of these authors see a continuity between these acts of negotiation and the acts of uh, protest that we saw across uh, the world, uh, including in the, uh, in the, in the Arab, uh, in the Middle East, actually, uh, in the last uh, decade. I, I want to emphasize this for planners because I think it's very important. What exists in those protests is that they're occupying places where very often residents were not allowed to actually gather or be together as a community. And so what is being enacted in this action here is the possibility of a collectivity. And through the actions of, I can speak of our experience in uh, Beirut downtown in 2019, what you see happening is that places that were allocated for power, for cars, for businesses, become appropriated and reimagined and redesigned through a performative act by the protesters. So they become soup kitchens, they become... Um, they become uh, free psychotherapy psych uh, psych uh, uh, places. They become communal discussion spaces. And by organizing the space this way, by enacting this organization, there is another possibility which is set in place that becomes very inspiring for people because it allows us to transcend the boundaries that we require to stay in. And that's the continuity that particularly Teresa Caldera points to when she speaks about a political potential in 
in the informal settlements because they actually really enact uh, that actual alternative. Of course, this literature has also been tagged as being romantic, as uh, uh, letting the state in a classic Marxist way um, really uh, get out very easily uh, because it's uh, since, uh, of course, since the 1970s with Burgess's work, uh, because then we're accepting the fact that there is no responsibility uh, on the authorities that exclude city dwellers. So the other way in which power is infused, if it's not resistance, is actually in the power of exclusion. It's in the uh, power of actually being unjust by uh, designing cities that are from the beginning exclusive, that de facto consider large sections of the population as uh, undesirable. And the literature points out very rightly that the, the actors who define what is legal and what is not legal are state actors. So it's the state as an institution which decides what will be in and what will be out. And that power cannot be bestowed on anyone else. So that distinction needs to be thought of critically. We see it in terms of planning regulations already with, with uh, John Turner, but we also see it uh, from, uh, from an understanding that connects it to a notion of class domination as early as in the late 70s with the Sousa Santos in, again in, in Brazil. Uh, since then, numerous studies have documented biases embedded in urban regulations and property rights uh, that show that basically there are huge repercussions to actually uh, being called unplanned or unregulated or undesirable. It is not simply that this that uh, that you're put outside, but there's a whole system of power that gets uh, unleashed if you're considered uh, outside state law, right? Informal. And that works against your inclusion or the imagination of rights. Uh, some of the interesting points are made, for example, in the 1990s by Aisha Yonder in Turkey or Raquel Rodnik in uh, Brazil, where they point to the fact that city maps show these green areas and they basically hide the informal settlements. So they don't exist, they're erased. But being erased, being off the book means eventually that you can also be bulldozed when the need for a big public project is set on the table or included if, um, if elections require it. In the last two decades, a lot of studies have documented massive population displacements attached to uh, a neoliberal system of governance that finds it easy to uh, revoke sometimes right, and most importantly, displace people who are then tagged as informal and hence losing their rights. I uh, picked on the Olympics as a powerful moment, both in China to the left, where over a million people were displaced ahead of the Olympic Games and to the right, uh, Rio, uh, ahead of the World Cup and the Olympics, where dozens of uh, thousands of people were uh, displaced. Um, and what we see in both of these is that the tag of informality is deployed against residents in, in these cases, and uh, that uh, consequently they, 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 they lose their right to, uh, to the just city. So what I wanted to tell you is that these readings are very problematic because they basically both uh, locate all of power in relation to the state. 
and they don't think of the fact that power is uh, much more diffuse than simply relations between the states and people. So when I go back to Beirut, if I go back to Beirut for the last five minutes to sort of make a point about this, and we look at the map of the city with the port explosion and the site of the port explosion, we found that the city is rife with buildings that we have documented in the urban lab to be under threat of eviction, of displacement. Buildings where, as I described before, in the entire city, um, residents live in conditions of high informality. Their occupancy, as is the case here, for example, um, is temporary. It rests since 1973 on the fact that the people who built the buildings disagreed between each other. Then the civil war started. They had sold some of the property, not all of it. And so what you end up with is 50 years later, a structure with multiple stories, uh, with multiple apartments and, 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 uh, and histories, a host migrant workers, refugees on oral contracts uh, who negotiate their presence on a uh, regular basis with their individual landlords, but also with the local strongman of the uh, neighborhood. You also end up with scenarios like this, where developers are going to come and buy a cluster of buildings and compete over that cluster that they hope to demolish so that they can actually replace it with a high-end building that brings a lot of money. And when they don't manage to get a full cluster, awaiting for an opportunity of redevelopment, they're going to rent it out temporarily as individual rooms. Um, heritage buildings held uh, because of the rent gap. Again, landlords trying to get rid of the tenants, not, not allowing anyone to even fix the building after the port blast. Um, why am I saying all of this? Now, I wanted to go to all these cases to say that what creates this informality is not simply that planning agencies are putting wrong rules or that they're all powerful and displacing residents. What creates that informality is primarily the fact that the city has been turned in so many ways as a financial asset and that what is happening is an everyday negotiation between those who want to stay in the city because they need a place to live and between those who want to invest in the city. And both groups should not be imagined as homogeneous or holistic. The two groups are actually um, extremely mixed. They both operate within a context of public policy making, which I had mapped here thinking I had much more time. I'm sorry, I uh, miscalculated. But both groups, uh, and um, what I was trying to show here, uh, operate in a context where the city is actually itself um, highly financialized. Its fabric is turned into uh, a substance that is used to attract foreign currency into the country, keep stability, and consequently uh, allow for uh, profit to be made. But in, in in this context, people are negotiating on one-to-one -one between each other their right to stay in the city in all these scenarios and others. But the practice is that these negotiations are happening at a much more private individual level and way less into the collective action imagined by those who are thinking that uh, uh, who are thinking that there is a a redistribution of powers. So what, what does this leave us as planners thinking about? I want to leave you thinking about in terms of the possibilities of planning, and I think there are plenty, is that we need to first and foremost think that planning 
has to refocus the attention on the collective. That housing is not simply an issue of going into an informal settlement and bringing it into the city of, or going to any of the scenarios that I wanted to describe to you in which negotiation is happening over the right to stay in the house or to upgrade it or even to fix it after an explosion. But actually planning needs to take back that question and imagine the possibility of a collectivity that demands uh, that demands that puts together a collective demand because that's the critical issue about planning and where i disagree with a lot of colleagues who uh, in the last decade have insisted on the centrality of the role of uh, the state in uh, being the custodian of the common good and hence being either to be brought in recognizing uh, rights or not i want to think that it is possible to build collectivities at the local level from the bottom up that around shared common issues where planners can really work in every context to imagine the possibilities of a just neighborhood. It can start around uh, a, a shared space or a demand for housing. It doesn't let the power off the hook, but it should not at any point assume that the custodian of the common good, that the principle of that collective is a predefined find we in cities that are increasingly divided. And that's where I think Lefebvre's genius lies. It's in allowing us to start thinking from the space we share as opposed to our identities and to think how are we going to live together. And that's the power of planning. I think this is why planning is such a powerful field. And, uh, and I still want to be a planner despite everything we've done to people in the last years. Thank you. This lecture was originally recorded for the Manifesto for the Just City workshop, organized in partnership with several schools, the Institute of Housing and Urban Development Studies of the Erasmus University in Rotterdam, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, the Winston-Salem State University in North Carolina, and a number of universities who took up this exercise as a class exercise, notably Morgan University in Baltimore and the Cape Peninsula University in Cape Town, South Africa. This event was organized by me, Caroline Newton, also from TU Delft, Hugo Lopez, Professor Russell Smith from Winston-Salem University, Carolina Luneta from IHS in Rotterdam, and Professor Faranak Miraftab from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. This podcast is produced by Roberto Rocco and Hugo Lopez. Music by Hugo Lopez and Pablo Teixeira. Sound edition by Hugo Lopez. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for design for values research, education outreach, and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods, and best practices in the area of design for values. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for design for values research, education, outreach and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods and best practices in the area of design for values. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Music, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and if you want to learn more about spatial justice and our duty of care towards the planet and each other, don't forget to hit subscribe. See you next time!